This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. Later in this show, we catch up with Charlie Pierce. Charlie was a bright young advance man for Mitt Romney during Governor Romney's first presidential campaign in 2008 when I profiled him for a magazine story. Charlie came back for another ride on the bus as Romney's trip director in 2012, and we'll talk about the journey one takes from election day at the candidate's side to coming back to reality. But first, something very special, listeners. With the president away, we're going to sneak into the White House, just you and me, to talk to someone who's holding down the fort, my dear friend Jennifer Palmieri, veteran like me of the Clinton days, a Washington institution from her days at the government-in-waiting at the Center for American Progress, and now back at 1600 Pennsylvania as the White House Communications Director, the pinnacle of achievement for anyone who mixes service in government, politics, and the media for a living. Jennifer Palmieri, welcome to Polyoptics. I'm very happy to be here, Josh. Uh, What is happening in the White House this week, a vacation week? A lot of planning, I suspect, for the fall. There is a good bit of planning for the for the fall, and you know the president has two weeks of August left too in terms of you know work week. So um, there's a lot to get ready for for that. And then there's also the situation that you can recall from being here that when the president's on vacation, that's when a lot of the staff choose to take vacation as well. So there's not. Um, um, you know, there's not a full crew here, so you end up also kind of just get dealing with the government does, you know, continues to run, so you end up dealing with uh, just whatever the news of the day is as well. So I try to have realistic expectations about how much planning and proactive work I was going to be able to get done this week, knowing that was probably going to be the case. Talk about, and, and then you get thrown a curveball, obviously a tragic one from Cairo mm-hmm. uh, this week. Let's hear a little bit of the president earlier today from Chilmark, Massachusetts. America cannot determine the future of Egypt. That's a task for the Egyptian people. We don't take sides with any particular party or political figure. I know it's tempting inside of Egypt to blame the United States or the West or some other outside actor for what's gone wrong. We've been blamed by supporters of Morsi. We've been blamed by the other side as if we are supporters of Morsi. That kind of approach will do nothing to help Egyptians achieve the future that they deserve. We want Egypt to succeed. We want a peaceful, democratic, prosperous Egypt. That's our interest. But to achieve that, the Egyptians are going to have to do the work. White House Communications Director Jen Palmieri, you've got Susan Rice, the National Security Advisor, and Josh Ernest, among other staff members up in Martha's Vineyard. What are the mechanics of deciding we're going to divert a little bit from vacation mode to allow the president to engage in foreign policy? Um, you know, Susan, as you know, is is up there and made the call with the president that this is, you know, that they felt uh, uh, the need for him to be heard up there. 
there's all this coordination back here with us because you know, just as a on the mechanical level, the government the government is doing other things, and you gotta link that. Um, you gotta link that up, and we have press here that are still covering um, Egypt out of the um, out of the White House. So you have to be cognizant of that. Your your brain may be split in half, but you're still one entity trying to um, trying to act together. And um, so they and I, you know, we made the announcement relatively late, I guess around 9:15, that he would be doing this. Um, um, this statement, and you know, of course, the mechanics of this—a concern about um, how and where you're going to do it when you're at a, um, you know, a place that's not set to handle this type of, uh, you know, a live feed or something like that. I mean, I, I remember uh, Jackson Hole, 1995. Uh, uh, Harry Wu, the Chinese dissident, is released and we make do the makeshift announcement right outside the Jackson Hole Country Club. So it seems every what president did you have from your backdrop, Josh. I I think Jennifer it was uh wood paneling from the clubhouse. It looked okay. Really? Yeah. The country yeah. club? I it was old days, Jen. You know, you could get away with this shit. <laughs> people, people don't necessarily know it was a country club. We had, we had trades. Oh, but, we had no, trades. but he had he had one of those polo shirts that was too tight and didn't look good. <laughs> That's terrible. It may it may uh, even been, it may have even been pink. <laughs> I think I might remember. I think I might remember that. But you, you know, you don't. You can't predict what is going to what you can't predict what the unexpected is but you know it's inevitable that there will be something unexpected that does happen so to some degree you plan because um you have in your head all right well the president needs to make a statement how are we going to do this if we need to bring to the press how are we going to um do that if you got to bring people up to see him how is that gonna happen so i feel that people are pretty wired to um know that uh, you're likely to have to improvise um, and at peace with understanding that you're just going to have to understand you're not going to know what that is, um, but you can rest assured that something will, like, something will pop up that you have to deal with. Uh, which raises the interesting question, Jennifer Palmieri. You are now back for your second uh, major tour in a presidential administration. Uh, the differences better or worse from the last time you came through in the 1990s? There is what I what really struck me was um, how similar it is the um, and it makes you have some perspective about how um, how relatively short your time is here and also how um, you know over the course of decades the White House has a um, particular rhythm that doesn't necessarily change with presidents and there's something. Um, frustrating about that. There's something also reassuring um, about that. But it's uh, the calendar is very much the same. The sort of tensions with Congress, although I saw, I find, um, you know, they may uh, ebb and flow with intensity. It's um, that you know dynamic seems to be the um, the same. And the president gets, uh, you know, the staff gets hit up to have the president go to the same events every year. And you know, like, oh, the first Sunday in December is going to be the Kennedy Center honors. And you know, um, so that is, it's remarkable how little um, changes in terms of the dynamics at a White House um, that a White House uh, has to deal with. The press has not changed in terms of 
you know, sort of human nature and how you engage with them and the type of things that they're interested in. Um, but obviously the, um, you know, the speed with which I thought things moved fast during the Clinton era, and we definitely had a 24-hour news cycle, and we still have a 24-hour news cycle, but we have a 24-hour news cycle that, um, uh, that revives itself every 15 minutes now. Um, and there is... So there's more to deal with, but also I don't know that any one moment matters as much as it used to because it's going to be followed pretty quickly by something else. So you try to keep that in perspective, too. And, and what about sort of the the culture of a staff and the soul of an administration? In our earlier days, we would sit in the big crowd in the audience, sort of at the feet of Don Bear or Ann Lewis. Now people are sitting at the feet of Jennifer Palmieri oh as you do sort of a big plan for a major uh, moment or event. What's it like now to mentor in a way that you were mentored in the 90s? It is sort of surprising to, I think, probably true for anyone to look around and realize, oh, I'm the, you know, that's me. I'm the I'm the grown up person, and I'm the one. Uh, like it or not, I have you know more experience than maybe I um, I would like to admit. I do think it is. I mean, you're right. It is helpful to having had been here before, and um, remembering all that I learned through osmosis. Um, and I, um, you know, I don't feel. There's like incredibly talented staff here, particularly on the in the digital world that I learn a ton from. Um, I do. I am aware of explaining why things are happening the way they are, and you know, do you get why this is why we're doing it this way, and what the strategy is um, behind that? Because I found that really illuminating, and it wasn't just on the communication side for Clinton. You know, I worked for Leon Panetta for a very long time starting to intern with him when I was 19 and uh, until I was 29 and he was the White House Chief of Staff. So I feel that that was a great privilege to see. That's where you see politics and legislative process, um, managing the United States federal government, which is the greatest management challenge in the world, I think you could um, credibly argue anyway, and learned a ton from that. So I do try to be aware of making sure people understand not just the, like, the thought process behind what we're doing. And I have people that are incredibly generous to me, and I'm pained now to think of some of the things that I said um, when I was a young person in the uh, Clinton White House and, you know, things that you presume. But I, uh, um, I'm trying to be a good, um, you know, source of support and knowledge for these folks, too. Jen, one of the iconic moments that we experienced in the 90s was uh, always the comparison, I think, to the 1963 photograph of uh, right. young Bill Clinton greeting uh, President Kennedy in the Rose Garden as part of the Boys Nation. And there was an interesting sort of revisit to the White House of Boys and Girls Nation a couple of weeks ago. And it's the kind of picture that doesn't get a lot of play these days when President Obama meets a group like this. I want to hear a little bit of their visit and have you reflect on how much we're seeing more of the personal side of Barack Obama or not. Happy 
So, Jen, I got that from the White House website, Mm -hmm. whitehouse.gov, and and President Obama engages with them very warmly. And this is not the kind of stuff that percolates into either broadcast or cable television much anymore. Do you feel like we're getting enough of who Barack Obama is, or are we just seeing the speeches? That's the irony, of course, right, that the more um, press that focuses on the president and um, not necessarily works out of here, although there's a lot of folks that do, but there is constant attention um, paid to whatever he is doing. But because it is constant and because it is minute by minute, it often doesn't get beyond the superficial, right? I mean, that's sort of counterintuitive, but... Um, I think the drive is always to, in the political press cycle anyway, to break the next iteration of an analysis of what's happening at the White House, opposed to, you know, what the president may actually be doing or saying, or maybe saying in a way that's, um, you know, quite poignant in terms of. Um, uh, something that's personal um, to him. And then you have moments that where I think that does come through. Um, you know, I think his comments on Trayvon Martin and the briefing right. were an obvious example of that. But even the press conference that he did last week, that was, you know, went pretty long. And um, his, uh, his answers were um, quite robust, I guess I would say. But I think that in those settings he reveals a lot of how he thinks about these issues and you know that's really important for the um you know i'm not sure that that what happens in a press conference in the east room um on a friday um in august really breaks through to the american people but i think it's a it's a useful thing for the press and him to sort of reorient in each other about where they're um how he is thinking about these um, these issues, but the um, but I think you make a good point that sometimes just because there's so much coverage and it normally goes right to some kind of analysis, there's not a lot um, of being able to see. There's not a lot of just seeing him, uh, you know, without some sort of overlay of another political issue. Yeah, and I want to go back to. Uh July 19th, that Friday morning that he came into the briefing room to talk about Trayvon Martin and hear just a little bit of his comments in the James uh, Brady briefing room and then ask you a question about that. Trayvon Martin could have been me uh, 35 years ago. And when you think about why in the African-American community at least, um, there's a lot of pain around what happened here. I think it's important to recognize that um, the African-American community is looking at this issue through uh, a set of experiences and a, and a history that, uh, that doesn't go away. Jen, I have to sort of break down the process here a little bit, and I think you'll 
you'll go along with me, which is no announcement of this these remarks the prior days. So there couldn't right. be any sort of pre-buttal or grandstanding on cable before they happened. Right. No, What's the bar he has to reach? What does he have to say? What does it mean to be successful? Who will he alienate? Yes. Uh, another important thing in King's view, which is no teleprompter, which uh-huh. tends to make the speaker, in this case the president, reach deep into the soul for for his thoughts, maybe with a couple notes on the podium. And so it, and no trip, so no Air Force One and not a lot of uh, logistics around it, but a huge moment and a huge piece of honest reflection by the president, almost in an unplugged kind of way. Did White House staff learn much from this moment? I think that... Um you know, once we heard what, when he told us the day before, what he had wanted to express, you know, that's a situation where you understand this is, he has something very powerful to say, um, you know, don't overthink it. That's what the briefing room is for, right? Yeah. I mean, whereas in another situation, you might think, well, people are like, why is he going into the briefing room and why is he doing it now? And, um, you know, this is a case where you knew it was going, it was, it, he had something to say. It was going to be a powerful moment. You know, there's not any need to, uh, you want it to be as organic and true as possible, which is very hard to do in, when you're dealing with the President of the United States um, because of all the setup that's required with um, getting the press to be able to cover something. Um, and this is a moment where we could do that. I'm not sure that you can replicate that um, or, you know, institutionalize it, right? I mean, that's why these moments are so powerful is because, you know, it, it, it's the power is in what he has to say. You know, you don't, I don't think you can then go on and have, um, do a series of those, right? You, you know, you can't manufacture organic um, or organic thought or spontaneity. And so I think when those moments come, um, they are powerful, and I think they probably have an impact on how the people, and you know, take in um, what they see of him. But in terms of lessons that you learn from it, you know, I think about this, but I don't think you can, you can manufacture or put something like that back on a you know, uh, institutionalized scale, like let's do this once a week or, you know, that's the, uh, that's what makes it powerful. That's right. And let's, let's then go on the other side of the pendulum to what you and I would, things don't change all that much in 15 years, what we would call the, the fully uh, thought through, advanced, produced, planned in advance trip, a Western swing a couple weeks ago that involved right. stops in Phoenix and California, mm-hmm. and uh, and take each one of them one by one as examples of sort of the state of the art of presidential communications. Let's begin in Phoenix right. uh, with, with his remarks on home ownership. Home is the ultimate evidence that here in America, hard work pays off, that responsibility is rewarded. Our housing market is beginning to heal. Home prices are rising at the fastest pace in seven years. Sales are up nearly 50%. Millions of families have been able to come up for air. They're no longer underwater on their mortgages. We've got to build on this progress. We're not where we need to be yet. And there are some immediate actions we could take right now that would help on that front. 
The uh, editing and uh, music soundtrack is courtesy of whitehouse.gov, Jen, and I was very impressed not only with that, but also with a very uh, Josh Kingian kind of backdrop in Phoenix. First time I've seen that in a while. How did that, how did that play over in the West Wing, Dan Pfeiffer? Which, which I, well, I, I can't see what you're looking at, so which did you find uh, this, Josh this, Kingian? This was a, a better bargain for the middle class, a, a home to call your class. own. I mean, right. it, was, it was hard wall. It was designed. It was a beautiful setting. Right. I, I'm a little critical sometimes of this president and the prior communications uh apparatus for being a little uh, a lot of the same folks a little blue drapey and american flaggy oh right um well the housing events are interesting because you think that visually they would be easy to do and they're actually very hard because well a you're in phoenix and it's 106 degrees in august right so being outside is not ideal um it's very hard to find a house where you can do an event with a president at. Um, it's really disruptive. Um, people live there, for example. Uh, there is, uh, you know, there might be, like, policy issues because that person wouldn't apply for the kind of mortgage that the president's going to be talking about. And, you know, so it gets really um, um, complicated, but we thought, which is why we ended up inside in Phoenix, um, you know, at a place that is manufacturing uh, things for homes. So that's, that, that's that good. That's out, inside. It's, um, you know, and that manu- turned out to be a great message as conveyed through WhiteHouse.gov. I mean, right. they're, about their employment levels, about the technologies that right. they're using. I mean, it, it all worked for me as long as I saw it packaged in the right way. And then we had the remarks to the larger crowd, and that's where we did the, um, the uh backdrop the better bargain for the middle class and a home for your own yeah uh, Jer- jeremy Gaines and i would call that a kingian backdrop <laughs> it it was i thought it was good i mean what we would have preferred would have been being able to do that all in one place so you have maybe there's some uh you know there are some sort of backdrop that has your overlying message, but that, you know, you also have the images of the, um, you know, the manufacturing images. But I thought that's actually, I think you're right. I thought this worked out pretty well. We're, uh, uh, Particularly for my, a housing event, which is really hard. In Phoenix in August, not easy. So let's go to a slightly easier venue, Burbank, California, the, the warm confines of the uh, Jay Leno yeah. studio at The Tonight Show. Here it's a, a clip. good trip. It was a great, and think about all the things you covered in those uh, minutes with Jay. I want to hear him talk a little bit about uh, his perturbedness with uh, Russian anti-gay laws. I've been very clear that when it comes to universal rights, when it comes to people's basic freedoms, uh, that whether you are discriminating on the basis of race, religion, gender, or sexual orientation, uh, you are violating... Uh, you know, the, the basic morality that I think uh, should transcend every country. And I have no patience for uh, countries that um, uh, try to treat gays or lesbians or transgender persons in, in, uh, in ways that uh, intimidate them or are harmful to them. Now, what's happening in uh, uh, Russia is not unique. When I traveled to Africa, uh, th- there were some countries that are doing a lot of good things for their people, 
you know, who we're working with and helping on uh, development issues, but in some cases have uh, persecuted gays sure. and lesbians. And it makes for some uncomfortable press conferences sometimes. But one of the things that I think is very important for me to speak out on is making sure that you know, people are treated fairly and justly uh, because that's what we stand for. And I believe that that's uh, a precept that's not unique to America. That's something that uh, should apply everywhere. The, the president has really uh, picked a couple of fights with Vladimir Putin on The Tonight Show. I wondered, Jennifer Palmieri, about the thoughts that go on in terms of what he's going to say with a host like Jay, and then how this translates into U.S. policy toward the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia. I'm not sure how much I'm going to get into U.S.-Russian the policy around the relationship, but the... In terms of prepping for Jay Leno or David Letterman or The Daily Show, um, I guess I'd say we are similar circumstances. Yep. We take it very seriously because what it really is is an hour-long interview on any topic um, that's in the news. And so it is uh, you have to prepare as if it were a... Um, as if it were a press conference, it's unlikely to get into, you know, finer details of the, you know, GSE housing reform bill going through um, the Senate Banking Committee. But it is, it 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 it, it is um, going to hit all of the uh, hot news topics of the day. They these um, hosts don't pull any punches that way. And it's also going to have a much larger audience than a um, than a press conference is going to have. And so we're very aware of that. And, you know, you're also aware that, it, you know, they can watch it in Russia as well. So um, you have that in your in your head, too. But yeah. the, uh, we did an interview with David Letterman during the campaign. And, you know, it was like an hour-long interview on substance. And you're right. The audience is much bigger, and then the morning shows uh, will will pick it apart piece by piece. So it gets a huge oh, amount got, of that, coverage. Got enormous amount of um, I got enormous amount of attention, and it's a good format for it's conversational. It's how people experience. It's how people normally experience um, conversation in their own lives. So it is. I think that it's a more, much more relatable um, uh, format. But even the press here, whereas they're always disappointed when someone other than um, a White House correspondent gets an interview with the president. You know, most of them uh, allowed that you can't say that Jay Leno doesn't ask serious questions um, or that the president is going on a show like that to avoid having to answer um, serious questions. Quite to the contrary, he addressed a lot of serious issues and um, in front of a big audience. It's good. So you're out on the West Coast, you're looking down the barrel at trying to get back for a little bit of vacation in Martha's Vineyard, but one more stop, Marine One, down to Camp Pendleton to see the troops, the U.S. Marine Corps base there, a little bit of President Obama with the Marines. I've got to tell you the truth, I've been looking forward to this visit because, and it's a little tricky to say this, but my family and I, we've got a special place in our hearts for the Marine Corps. Part of it is because every day at the White House, we're surrounded by Marines. In fact, we got, probably got some folks here who were at the White House who are now here at Camp Pendleton. 
See? <laughs> I figured as much. Jennifer Palmieri, I always thought that we went into some of Clinton's trips involving the armed services with a little trepidation, but once uh, we got on the ground as an advanced team and once we got President Clinton in close to the troops, he had a great time. What is the relationship with President Obama and some of these visits to bases like this one in California concluded over at Camp Pendleton? I think that he and both the First Lady find these these types of visits really energizing and really inspiring. And I know that you know, the First Lady talks about um, prior to um, the president becoming a candidate, she hadn't had as much exposure to military families and, you know, what's their, what their um, existence can be like and some of the challenges they face. And I, I grew up in a Navy family. It's three generations. Um, pride of Pascagoula. That's right, the pride of Pascagoula. <laughs> Uh, me and Trent Lott, Jimmy Buffett, uh, all from Pascagoula. Uh, so they, I think they have a great, uh, I think they find them inspiring because there is obviously, you know, anyone who puts themselves in the military is there to defend the country and putting themselves at risk and their families serve too. And they, But they're always so fired up, if you're pride in the expression, to um, um, to not just see them, but to you know engage in, in whatever they're um, in whatever they're working on, but that uh, and they find that sort of refreshing outside. It's you know very different from what you experience in um, in politics, and it's inspiring. And I think the president comes back and reflects that you know well here are these guys who are really you know in harm's way, and um, you know they're going out doing their job working incredibly hard for um, all of us and you know we got all this and you compare that to some of the pettiness in, in Washington and it looks pretty small but we didn't have a particular policy reason at the moment to go to Camp Pendleton it's just um, when we're near a base like that it's something that that he likes to do and really gets a lot out of. As we wrap up with White House Communications Director Jennifer Palmieri, uh, Jen, I just noticed this week uh, the Republicans picking Boston as a place to have their summer retreat. An interesting, uh, an interesting conversation uh, this week with Reince Priebus and what former, is that House, about? former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. And I want to play a little bit of what he said and, and see if that uh, feeds any of the communication strategy from the White House this fall. We have to get beyond being anti-Obama, and we have to reconvince people that you can have hope in America. So that's the, the speaker, uh, Jennifer. What's, what's on tap uh, in the final couple weeks of August and then into the fall? And, and is there, can Republicans and Democrats in the White House and Congress play in the same sandbox in Washington, D.C., in this town? For the, the next two weeks, so next week the president's going to do a bus tour something Josh King also loves. Oh, I'd love that. You love that. Um, in uh, actually starting in Buffalo and going down to Scranton. Oh, maybe I should go on that. Um, is this your is this your territory? Well, no, but Buffalo, no. Scranton. That We did a great, remember we did the Great Lakes bus tour. That was number two bus tour in 1992. Oh, I no, I didn't. Uh, well, so that's because that's when some of those states were battleground, more battleground states that's than right. they are now. So those are areas we haven't been too much. But he's doing, so we're doing that. This is, you know, over the next, you know, go, uh, the, we're sort of in the middle of a two-month um, stretch where just about every week he's doing another speech on economic policy, something that um, is going to, you know, is going to help the middle class. And next week will be college affordability. And 
I think that's going to be really interesting. We have um, some pretty innovative proposals that he will uh, that he will unveil there. Then the following week is the you know that's week between Labor Day. It's a pretty quiet week normally in Washington, but that's going to be the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. Um, that President Obama is speaking at, President Clinton is speaking at, John Lewis, you know, who's one of the um, last surviving speakers from the march will speak at, too. I think that will be really powerful. And then we have Russia and Sweden uh, the following week, and Congress comes back relatively late, like on the, um, on the 10th. And it, um, I think if they had... If they take the speaker up on Speaker Ginkert said it upon his advice, that'd be welcome because you know we think a a thoughtful opposition that is engaged on ideas and has other proposals that they you know that they are for that they're trying to advance. Um, you know, we think that's a place where you can have a constructive dialogue, and that's happened on that's happening on the housing legislation, that happened on student loan um, debate, that's happening on immigration reform, and it's been refreshing and good. It hasn't happened to date as much, at least on on the House side, although we have good conversations with Senate Republicans um, on, when it comes to budget and fiscal issues. So, you know, hard to predict what September is going to be like, but um, I hope it's It'd be great if they took the speaker's advice. As a uh, as a polyoptician, Jennifer Palmieri, I will be watching uh, every minute of that coverage of the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington and the I Have a Dream speech. Right. And as we as we thank you for uh, coming on the show this week, and as we head to the break, a preview for next week with the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington coming up on August 28th. My friend Matt Bennett sits in as host for a conversation with Stuart Connolly author of Behind the Dream, The Making of the Speech that Transformed a Nation. And here then the trailer, the moment after the speech shifted into overdrive at the urging of Mahalia Jackson, who said, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. Well, Martin, tell us about the dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up live out the true meaning of its creeds. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created in I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream Draft of History, unfiltered and unedited on POTUS.
As promised in my intro, a return to one of my old friends from the campaign trail 2008 when I was dispatched by Men's Vogue magazine to write about the rules of the road. I wanted to look at both Democrats and Republicans and how they were portraying uh, their candidates on campus on the campaign trail. And I came across the Mitt Romney campaign and focused intently on Charlie Pierce, then a young first-time advanced man working on the campaign. He re-ups, re-enlists for the 2012 effort and becomes Governor Romney's trip director, the highest-ranking advanced person on the road, stays with him from Charlie Pierce, the beginning of the campaign until the last night in Boston? Correct, yeah. From, uh, I think it was around May 2011 and then uh, throughout throughout election night in, uh, in Boston. Let's hear a little bit of election night in Boston, how that sounded. Like so many of you, Paul and I have left everything on the field. We have given our all to this campaign. I so wish, I so wish that I had been able to fulfill your hopes to lead the country in a different direction, but the nation chose another leader, and so Ann and I join with you to earnestly pray for him and for this great nation. Charlie Pierce, if you believe Stuart Stevens and the, and the uh, reporting coming from Mitt and Ann Romney, the Romneys were thunderstruck by the result that night in Boston, true? I wouldn't say they were thunderstruck. Um, they were surprised and disappointed, um, and, and you know they, we really thought we were going to win all the way up to the end of, the, of that thing. But um, I, I wouldn't say they were thunderstruck. I would say they were, um, you know, in some ways it was. Uh, I would I would say they're almost relieved uh, coming back from things. I mean, the gov had after after he finished that speech, he came backstage, and. Uh, and he started hugging everybody from person to person. And Eli Miller, who's uh, he's uh, one of our, our longtime advanced guys, and he was always that advanced guy who you know happened to be right next to the candidate uh, all the time when he left stages. And, you know, we'd always say, you know, Eli, you know, get out of the shot, get out of there. But so of course the gov walked backstage. Eli was right there. He said he hugged Eli. He hugged me. Um, and uh, and you know I, I wouldn't say they were thunderstruck, um, but you know they were definitely disappointed. And um, and you know it was it was a surprise to us all. I think. With the enthusiasm of the crowds in, in the last few weeks and, and the Gov's just spectacular performance in the debates, there was just this energy coming through the traveling party, and we were all really hopeful. We really thought we had a chance at this thing, and you know, whenever you're going up against the President of the United States, a spectacular campaigner and Barack Obama and, and their organization, you know, you have your doubts, and um, and the Gov was hopeful for victory, but uh, you know, he ended up not getting that far. That was the first time I've heard that. That's uh, since uh, since I left there. It was uh, that was a rough night. I was reflecting, doing some writing of my own about. 1988 in Boston, working for the last, uh, working for another governor of Massachusetts uh, who had to write, make a concession speech in Boston. That's Michael Dukakis in 1988. And thinking about my own experience and, you know, leaving the bubble uh, that you'd been in for so long and the Secret Service pretty much stands down immediately. You see photos within days of Governor Romney filling up his own car somewhere in Belmont. What's it like for you? What do you do that when you walk out of that hotel that night? You know, I'd, uh, 
I'd put a plan in place just in case this has happened. I'd, I've lost five out of my six campaigns. So <laughs> um, I have the, uh, in case of emergency, break, break glass option. And, and that usually involves heading out into the wilderness. So um, I'd actually, I, I'd, I rented a cabin for about six months to to collect my thoughts. I actually, I journaled every day of the campaign. So I collected about 800 pages of handwritten wow. journals. And um, I turned those in sort of into a Word document that will remain under lock and key and a computer that uh, never accesses the internet until uh, until I'm long gone. Um, but it was nice to reflect on that and, and you know, it, but it, you're right, it, it changes immediately. I mean, that night I had gone from, especially the last six months of my life, I mean, in a foreign trip to, you know, three foreign countries and just the, the, the ups and downs of, of, of an absolutely grueling primary. Um, and then you, you, you come to this point where, you know, I, right before the governor goes out, I, I went out to the podium and, and checked the teleprompters for the last time. You know, I, I had my, uh, my, my cowboy boots, which gave me an extra two and a half inches and put me at perfect Mitt Romney level. And I'd been using these and setting teleprompters for the gov for the last year and a half. And, you know, I put the speech out there, set the teleprompters for the last time, walked backstage, uh, the gov came out and then, uh, and then, and then you go home, you have a few drinks and, uh, and you wake up the next morning and your entire life is completely different. I mean, you go from, you know, taking a private jet three or four trips a day, you know, in my case, you know, telling, you know, telling the pilots when we're going to take off, taking a secret service up to the, up to the plane. Uh, and, and it's just a completely bizarre life you lead for this, this, this condensed period of time. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, in my case, you're up in Maine and, uh, and you're journaling and you're, you're snowshoeing and you're, uh, and you're hunting. And, <laughs> and so that's the best way imaginable to do things. I don't, I don't know if I could have just gone straight from that and gone to a corporate gig or something of that sort. Your tales of Maine first captivated me back in 2008. Where exactly is your wilderness destination these uh, days? It's a place called Aquasic, Maine, um, and it's up. Uh, it's about four and a half hours northwest of Boston, um, and it's the furthest northwest point you can get up in Maine. You know, you actually get Canadian cell service up there. And it's on a thing called the Northern Forest Canoe Trail, which is uh, a 740 mile. Uh, a canoe route, contiguous route, about 56 lakes and rivers, half of which you go upstream. That I, it's a journey that I completed. It starts in the Adirondacks in New York, goes across Lake Champlain, uh, through Vermont, across New Hampshire, across Maine. Takes about two months to do, and I actually I did that after the McCain campaign. So this is uh, it's sort of the Teddy Roosevelt method to deal with politics. Good website for interested followers to to find information about that area. Yep, to... the uh, NFCT, the Northern Forest Canoe Trail, or NFCT.org. You have always struck me as the ultimate main guide slash advance man. What about wilderness survival and the maturity one needs to deal with all elements prepares you for the rough and tumble of the campaign, both the politics and also the logistics and managing everything? You know, I was just talking with uh, Will Ritter, who uh, I believe you have on the show previously, the director of advance on, uh, on Mitt Romney's campaign. And he was also a former camp counselor, and we were talking about this and, and kind of what gives you that edge. And, um, and I think it's 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 first of all an ability to, to deal with change, <laughs> to deal with audibles. Uh, you know, when you're out there in the in the middle of the wilderness, and uh, and and you know you're you're a couple hours away f- by, via paddle from the closest ranger station, and you're maybe 24 hours away from the nearest hospital if somebody gets hurt. Um, you have to adapt to you know injuries. You have to adapt to changing circumstances, lost food, food being eaten by animals. Uh, you know, canoes flipping over in rapids and being, having to be abandoned. Um, and uh, and then part the other part is just the, the preparation and the things you learn to, you know, in the leadership roles, you, you learn to take, you know, 13 kids to the wilderness. So it's that whether you're, you know, going by canoe um, and sleeping in a tent every night or whether you're going by, you know, private jet and sleeping in hotels every night, you know, they're, they're much bigger toys to play with. The children but, are much better behaved than the press corps, though. Right. The, 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 well, you know, actually, <laughs> I, I, I would say the children, the campers... Uh, 
had a phenomenal resemblance to some of the members <laughs> of the press corps, um, especially uh, overseas. But um, the I, I'll give you one example on kind of one of the things that uh, I, I took from my camp counselor experience uh, into the, onto the presidential campaign, and and that was the employment of the buddy system. Uh, now the buddy system, uh, if for those of you who've been to camp, or you know when you go, you know when you take a swim for general swim and go to the rafts you know you basically are assigned a buddy and you have to keep track of your buddy and that makes sure that you know one counselor in charge of 10 kids on a raft doesn't have to be constantly monitoring every kid um all the time and they kind of it's sort of a self-empowerment mechanism so in the last two weeks of the campaign which i called the tourist season because it went from myself mitt romney Stuart stevens kevin madden and a to couple danish press uh yeah, yeah to <laughs> danish press and to you know every single senior staff member who uh who wanted to get one a taste of the road on the way out uh we so you know we went from traveling with a, a campaign staff apparatus of about eight people and it ended up being about 20 uh so you know they took to it you know extremely well so you have beth myers and and Stu as buddies and Ron Kaufman and, you know, uh, Mike Levitt as buddies one day. And, and usually these people who might not get back to the motorcade in time uh, before departure, you know, you, you instead of looking at me and saying, Charlie, you left without me, it's, you know, oh, your buddy left without you, you know, you got to... <laughs> Did you have little circular labels on the plane door? I actually, on, on all the motorcade vans, I would have, you know, I, every morning I would assign a buddy. So I would switch it up. So, you know, Spencer's Wick, you know, you might be with uh, Mason Fink one day and then, he, you know, he might be with uh, Stuart Stevens the next day and Kevin Madden would be, you know, with, uh, with Beth one day and we kind of... We'd, we'd, we'd rotate them so that everybody had different buddies, but their their names would be on the uh, on the van so that they'd know which you know van one, van staff van one, staff van two, staff van three. And I, I'm telling you, Josh, you might want to employ this system. It, and these egos bought into this? Oh, not not only that, we're just enthusiastic about it. I mean, you could see you know high level staff saying, "Where's my buddy? We we can't leave without him." And it, from from my perspective, that means instead of having to search for 20 people and say, "Hey, you got to get to the motorcade, got to get to the motorcade," they were all searching for each other, and you know it actually made my life a lot easier for the last two weeks. So your wilderness seclusion comes to an end. Those, uh, all those pages of Microsoft Word are, are carefully locked away in your vaults. But Charlie Pierce, you do return to uh, the political uh, firefights, and you're all, you're battling against your own. I did in the Republican primary in the special election in Massachusetts. What I, happened? I did. I was I was I was recalled out of my self-imposed exile uh, for a, uh, a special election campaign, a, a primary, <laughs> on the, uh, a, a Republican primary in Massachusetts, and um, my uh, my good friend Will Ritter and, uh, and and former boss on the on the Romney campaign show was my opponent. Uh, yeah, I, I explained it as sort of like spy versus spy in some ways. You know, you know all the tricks uh, of your opponent because we spent, you know, a year and a half together on that campaign, having a conference call every night. You know, uh, and we we know all each other's moves, and it, you know it was really fun. F- fortunately for me, you know, Will is really he's really gotten a hold of Twitter, and and I'm a uh, I'm a known Twitter denier. Um, you are. <laughs> Definitely, you're and, hard uh, to track down. I am, and uh, you know, I'm going to have to break sometime. I was probably the only communications director um, in the in the in the last few campaign cycles uh, to not actively use Twitter. And I have a Twitter account. I've never tweeted. Um, I have about five people I follow, and uh, I think I have about six or seven followers. But um, fortunately, my candidate in that campaign was absolutely obsessive. He was the master of our, our Twitter strategy, so I left that to him. But Will Ritter, uh, he was, he, I think he was disappointed that he didn't get to have Twitter battles with me throughout the campaign. <laughs> um, so what I think you and I talked in some detail after 2008, like, what do you do now? You would come right out of college. I encouraged you to go to law school. Don't know if you ever did. Uh, I, I but, did not. I um. So I, what do you do? I now? Jo- I, I I joined the uh, after that camp or after that campaign. I joined the um, well the McCain campaign. I went onto the Baker for Governor campaign in Massachusetts as his director of operations, director of advance, 
and then uh, shortly thereafter onto the Romney campaign, and then communications director. And you know, I've 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 got a gig that's going to be sending me internationally. Hopefully, I'll I'll be uh, I'll be confirming that in the next two weeks. I'm sort of changing direction directions, and um, I'm really excited about it. It's still in the elections kind of campaign world, but um, um, but it's going to be I think you know after after six campaigns and, and and losing five out of my six, my my only win was the 2006 congressional election. In uh, in Dayton, Ohio, which 2006 was a good year for Republicans to win, so I'm I'm proud of that one, and and I count the the Romney 2008 uh, primary win a, a, as a victory as well. A presidential primary win is is is, a, is you know as big as winning a, a statewide race. But, but really, don't you think the seventh time could be a charm? I mean, l- let me let me just sketch this out for you. When you and I met, uh, 08, you eventually uh, McCain is the nominee who in this old Republican tradition of the guy who's been at it the longest gets the chance, and he's up against a historic figure in President Obama. Your guy then gets, Governor Romney then gets the chance in 2012, but he's against a presidential incumbent, historic or not, and that one is tough. Now you come up to 2016, and one might argue that the the minor leagues and the bench strength of the Republicans... Uh, is stronger, maybe with one exception of Senator, uh, Secretary, First Lady Clinton, Hillary Clinton. Uh, seventh time could be your year if you're ready to go one more time. Absolutely, no, you know, I, this is this is sort of a uh, something to get me until the, the presidential cycle, and 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 if I take to it and I, I really enjoy it, I'm, I might stay with it. But the lure of a presidential campaign is uh, is undeniable. You you <laughs> once you've been to the big show. Uh, you want to go back and back again. I mean, I've only been twice. I'm th- I just turned thirty, and uh, and I've I've got to imagine a Republican's going to win. And if I just keep on uh, keep keep at it every four year cycle, that I'll be able to make it to the big show at some point. Because besides being trip director to the nominee for presidency of the United States, being trip director to the president, I have to imagine. And I'm sure you know more about that. Is these is the is the best job in the entire planet. So well, you got a taste of it in. Uh, England and Israel and Poland on that foreign trip, and it wasn't always easy, as you know. I mean, there was, there couldn't have been more hiccups, you know, on those six days than there were. You had a gorgeous Magic Hour speech in Jerusalem. We you did. had a very nice speech in Warsaw, uh, but you really ran into a buzzsaw with uh, Boris Johnson and David Cameron and and the British press, didn't you? We did, we did, and you know. Um, but from an operational standpoint, from my, my perspective, you know everything went flawlessly. Uh, we had a few hiccups with the Secret Service uh, making us late to a few venues, which we uh, we quickly rectified by the time we got to Israel and Poland, and they performed spectacularly from then on out. But being the nominee and not having the actual presidency of the United States or any elected officials traveling with us, we really had v- almost no U.S. embassy support in England or, or Poland or Israel, so it was ex- to be expected. Um, and yeah, there, there were some rough spots for the Gov. Um, Rick Gorka's moment, one of them. Th- that Rick Gorka's moment was one of them, and and I was I was there for that, and uh, as well as all the others. Um, but uh, and, you know, I think that was that was one of those times where you really feel, you really feel like it's us versus them, um, especially how insular it is when you're traveling in a foreign country. I mean, I just. You know, I, I'm good friends with a lot of members of the media, and 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 uh, and you know, to this day, I, I keep up with a lot of them. But you know, at at that time, you just we just really felt like we were being you know unfairly attacked by all sides, and that there's almost by the time we got to Poland, and when they turned it in, we can't get anything bad on Mitt Romney, and you know, well, we get something bad on the staffer, so let's you know, we really want to make this a three for three in terms of a bad foreign trip, and like let's let's pin it on him. I mean, that's something in a in a in a pre- previous time frame that 
you know, the press would have never, you know, a, a, a member of the media, you know, cursing at a, at a, at a press, you know, agent has, has happened. And making that into news. Right. I mean, that's basically off the record press wrangling. Right. Exactly. Um, and, you know, and, and, and again, I mean, in the world we live in now, nothing seems to be off the record right. with Twitter and, and all these things. And we have to be careful of those. But, um, um, I, you know, it, it was for, operationally, though, for me being my first foreign trip, you know, it was spectacular. We lost one bag. uh uh, Jim Acosta's bag was lost in Israel. Um, we had to pay for all of his things. Um, it was the only bag that was lost during the entire campaign. However, I'm glad to report that uh, a few months later, it was rerouted through Canada, and Jim Acosta got his bag back. So, if Jim's out there, you know we could really use that five grand back for uh, uh, <laughs> for, for the clothes you bought. But Charlie Pierce sitting up at the U.S. Canadian border in your seclusion. I mean, look, it, whenever you lose, uh, you search deep in your soul and there are things that you learn and the things and there are lessons that you're going to take with you. What did 2012 teach you about politics and what did it teach you about yourself that you didn't know going in? Well, about politics, I will say that um, that that primaries are can be very influenced by these super PACs um, and, and money and organization and whatnot. Um, especially in, in terms of the media. But when you come to the general election, forces beyond your control start to uh, start ganging up against you. And, and I think that's what that's what I learned most in this presidential campaign. I, I really felt that, you know, there really wasn't much to change the dynamic in terms of the press narrative, you know, following the primary. I mean, it was really, I, you know, I, I've never been, you know, I, I read the New York Times and, uh, and that's, that's my, my, my paper of choice. I've never been one to say there's liberal media bias and, and buy into it. But I, I think, um, yeah, I think I think that was one of the big things I learned was it was really really tough to to, to control that narrative out there. Um, the things I learned about myself is just that I, I can handle the pressure <laughs> of a trip director. I mean, you, I think that's one of the things I miss most is you know you, uh, it's such a, a nervous experience to do anything new and especially something that big. And I was you know I was 28 when I started off being trip director to Mitt Romney, and um, it's a uh, it's a terrifying experience. I mean, you you go from a small staff of just a few people and. Uh, and, and, you know, in the advanced and operations department and you're having a couple of big events a week that you set up and, you know, you can write it on a scratch of paper to, you know, and, and calls the team. And by the time you hit the Iowa caucuses and then through New Hampshire, I mean, in Iowa, our team went from three or four people to eight or nine people and then New Hampshire to 10 or 12. And then, you know, and by the end, end of the campaign, you got 150 people and, and two press planes flying around the country and you're organizing this. So it's just figuring out how to organize all those things. Um, was was just something that I, I'd never dealt with, and it, it, you know I, I would say like the staff plan. You know, you like you, like I said, you're behind, you're writing originally writing. You're taking out a map of Iowa, you're circling the cities, and you're writing the names of guys like on the map that you're going to send to those cities ahead of the gov. Uh, by the end of the campaign, we developed a completely new system of a, a giant magnet magnet board with uh, magnets of pictures of each of the advanced guys' faces, what what job, lead, site, press, advance that they were, different colors for each one. Uh, representing that their first trip, then the next trip they'll be deployed to, and then the third trip they'll be deployed to, and then you have all the dates for the candidate and the vice president, vice presidential candidate on on a giant board, and you know it's just it's the most fun chess game in in the world, just kind of moving those guys around, and it was exciting to see that get built up. Well, Governor Chris Christie, Governor Scott Walker, Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Marco Rubio, if you are looking to get your campaign going, there can be no better first stop than signing up as your trip director or director of advance, one Charles Pierce, Charlie Pierce. One of the best operators in the business, Democrat or Republican. Charlie, great to see you again. Good to see you, Josh. Last time I saw you, you were at the Iowa State Fair on top of a roof shouting my name. So it's good to see you under more mellow circumstances. Thanks, man. <laughs> Take care. 
This week we noted the passing of the great Jack Germond, somewhere near Rye, New Hampshire. My father-in-law, Ed Theobald, is shedding an Irish tear for Jack, who he admired greatly for his journalism, for his wit, and for the fact that to cozy up to a source, he once downed 13 Irish whiskeys followed by beers. We leave you now with an ode to the departed Germond, Bill Sapphire, Bob Novak, and the still-living Joe Klein on Meet the Press with the departed Tim Russert, their subject, a particular moment of stagecraft at the 2000 Democratic Convention, the mother of all kisses between Al and Tipper Gore. Jack Germond, how about the kiss? You're the Romeo of the table. <laughs> I, I thought the... I, I, I was really... I was really... I broke up over the whole idea. Here's a guy who says the Playboy Mansion is not an appropriate place for him to go for somebody else's fundraiser because it's too racy. And then he, he, he gives an X-rated kiss on the stage <laughs> on national television. I Bill. thought that was kind of charming. Uh, uh, there is a, an increase in physicality uh, that's uh, amazing, where people used to just shake hands or put an arm around the shoulder. Now it's these big hugs. And as we saw the other night, this passionate kiss on the mouth. It's, it's the, the Sammy Sosa factor. It's all, the kisses and touches the, the heart. Two, and any, any two, word, two words I've heard describe that kiss. Charming and disgusting. <laughs> Where are you, Novak? <laughs> I'm on the disgusting side. <laughs> I, 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 Doctor, <laughs> the prince of darkness. Huh? Anytime that, that a major politician does something that appears to be spontaneous of, or off the program or hasn't been market tested, I'm in favor of it. I hope he's is, not passionate. They, passionate uh, apparently, women really like to kiss. Not all baby. women, Jack. No. All right, all right, all right. To be continued, Novak and Germán are going to arm wrestle on this one. Joe Klein, Bob Novak, Jack Germán, Bill Sapphire. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual. Think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. <laughs>